Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rough Draft Podcast. My name is Nathan Luque. I'm going to be your host for this episode. And this is kind of a special one. We had the opportunity to sit down and talk with visiting author Ken Ilgunis, who is here to speak to YCP community about one of his most recent books, Trespassing Across America, One Man's Epic Never Done Before and Sort of Illegal, Hike Across the Heartland, in which Ken chronicles his 1,700-mile trek along the proposed route of the Keystone XL Pipeline, the people that he met along the way, the landscapes that he saw, and how this trip informed his most recent book, which is entitled This Land is Our Land, How We Lost the Right to Rome and How to Take It Back, which is Ken's manifesto, his plea for Americans to begin to develop a new relationship with private property. We appreciate Ken taking the time and sitting down in the studio here to talk to us and for the talk he gave here on campus. But before we jump into the, uh, to the talk with Ken, as always, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Spotify or somewhere else, and stay tuned for what we have for you for the rest of the semester. And now let's jump into this interview with Ken. All right, I'm here with Ken Ilgunis, author of Walden on Wheels, Trespassing Across America, and I believe, which is your newest book, This Land is Our Land, correct? Mm-hmm. Awesome. First of all, thank you for taking the time to do this. My and pleasure. Coming here to talk to us and come talk to the YCP community. I went out and bought this and Trespassing last night. I'm part of the way through both of them, and it's immediately apparent how one sort of informed the other. So I'm kind of going to bounce around a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's all right with you. But um, I would like to start somewhere near the beginning. I wonder if you can tell me about where you grew up. I was born in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My folks moved to Western New York when I was six years old. So I grew up outside of Buffalo, New York and Niagara Falls, New York, this little suburban town called called Wheatfield and spent the first part of my life there. After I graduated from undergraduate college, I went up to Alaska and I stayed up there for a while. I lived up there for seven years off and on. And these days I live in just outside of Edinburgh, Scotland. Yeah, awesome. I think it was in This Land is Our Land, in like the first chapter maybe you called Wheatfield a boyhood paradise. What, Mm -hmm. what, What made it that? Well, we were one of the first families to move into our subdivision. So it was kind of just like cleared forest and muddy and they were building new homes. So you had like these plywood castles Mm. where we were just like me and my brother, we would play fight our other boyhood friends and throw big mud clumps (laughs) and kind of lay, lay siege that way. And it was just like, it was just like a classically ideal American childhood where we got to play street hockey on the street. We found any field we could and played some tackle football and baseball and basketball in the driveway. We built forts in in the backyard. But yeah, it didn't last that way forever. We were kind of watching America develop before our eyes and we saw the place covered in asphalt and more forest bulldozed over and it just became more and more of kind of a a cookie cutter suburb by the time we we left yeah. so and th- these are trends that are happening all across america yeah yeah i wonder if that upbringing and we were talking about movies before we started recording you mentioned the goonies stand by me two movies that i love both of which have to do with kids going on adventures just like out 
you know, wherever they can find adventure, you know, and I wonder if stories like that eventually like informed your desire to travel later in life. Probably. Like I was, I was a, a little movie buff as a, <laughs> as a teenager. I loved watching movies and, you know, just another kind of standard aspect of American life. I had my own room. I had my own TV. Mm-hmm. I had my own VCR at yeah, the time. I would have been jealous. <laughs> so I had I had lots of time for kind of isolation and just kind of watching movies and playing video games and stuff like that. And you're never conscious of what's happening to you at the time, but what we consume ultimately helps form who we are. Totally. And probably watching movies like The Goonies and E.T. and Braveheart and and all of those, it certainly has an impact on you that you're only able to see decades later when you're totally. when you're looking back and all these movies just have kind of the standard sort of hero's journey mm-hmm. in them you know a, a call to adventure resistance to the adventure and something that actually takes you on the adventure and and then self transformation from that adventure so maybe these things kind of factored in my desire to, f- to flee the suburbs and to go up to places like Alaska. Yeah. What about like reading and writing? When did, uh, when did books come into the picture? So, yeah, I am a professional author yeah. who comes from a, a household where we didn't have one bookshelf of, yeah. of books. And, you know, of course, I read stuff for, for school. But how many times did I read something voluntarily for fun no i always watched a movie or played a video game or was out playing sports or something like that i I think when i was 19 i was the first time i voluntarily read a book and that was a walk across america which was written in the 1970s by this author named peter jenkins and he walked from alfred new york which isn't horribly far from here and he went all the way to the gulf coast it's a very simple travel book there's there's not like rich philosophy in it or anything like that but i was captivated by it and for some reason whenever i was driving somewhere i would always kind of think like what if i walked instead of drove what if i walked these two you know Mm -hmm. like for two days even though i didn't have any sort of kind of experience with backpacking or anything like that i think i was just like intrinsically drawn to long difficult journeys yeah on foot on foot yeah that makes a huge difference you you mentioned alaska and trespassing across america i think opens with you and working in alaska is that correct and you mentioned this character liam and uh as someone who like i worked in restaurants all through my 20s still work in a restaurant this uh i think his name is liam the chef correct Mm -hmm. i loved this character and I love these, this adventure you went on to the Arctic Ocean. And he just seems like someone who'd be very at home in like an Edward Abbey novel. You know what I mean? But as you're like kind of traveling to the Arctic Ocean, you find yourself, you have to trespass across an oil field. Mm-hmm. And you write something here that I was really struck by. And it was, it's, it's kind of like as you're panicking, looking around. And it says, and I'm sorry to like quote you to yourself. No, go for it. Weird. But it says, in addition to panic, I felt something else. The jolt of a raw encounter with an unforgiving wilderness. The exuberance of having a firsthand experience with the world. A wild gush of emotions that made me feel, though scared and panicky, overflowing with light. And I think people who like are attracted to the wild, who have spent time in wilderness, this is like one of the experiences that they are always chasing. And I wonder if that's true for you. It's not. I'm not like an adrenaline junkie or anything like that like i think i'm at bottom a practical 
pragmatic, even boring, boring person. But in that particular context, that period of my life, that was something close to a, a rock bottom. Like yeah. I was in my late 20s and I had no career. My writing, my first writing project was more or less falling apart. My literary agent abandoned me when he read my first chapter. I still haven't ever heard from Gary. <laughs> um, Shout out Gary. And I was, I was dishwashing up in this Arctic labor camp working for the oil industry and I'm an environmentalist. So it's kind of like this little trip that Liam and I had was that jolt with a wild, amazing, natural world. It was an escape, but am I looking for that all the time? No, but sometimes, sometimes in our lives, we need those moments. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about what led you to hitchhike up to, I think, Alberta and to make this 1,700-mile trek along Keystone XL Pipeline. Yeah, so it's kind of rooted in what we were just talking about, working for the oil industry in northern Alaska as, as an environmentalist and just kind of being unhappy with the shape my life was, mm -hmm. was taking at the time. And... I think it's in those those rock bottoms we have, those moments of despair and purposelessness. That's when we're most ready to make a big change in our lives. That's when the crazy ideas start coming. That's when we're ready to infuse purpose into our lives. So I was just primed for a big change. And Liam and I, we'd watch the TV after, our, after my dish shift, and we were watching all these people protesting this pipeline called mm -hmm. the Keystone XL. You know, their bodies were getting hauled away in acts of civil disobedience in Washington, D.C. And the next day, like, we just had the craziest conversations in the mm -hmm. kitchen, as you may know, oh, which, yeah. which happens in, in kitchens. And he, and he just kind of, as a lark, just suggested, let's just hike the whole thing. Let's just, let's go out. It, it was his it was a, idea. It was his idea. And for him, it was like a half serious joke, sure. but probably most a joke. But it was a lightning bolt for me. Mm -hmm. It hit me square in the chest yeah. and I could see my escape. I could see my escape from Dead Horse and from this life that is lacking a bit of meaning. So then I would spend the next year off and on planning this, this journey, you know, getting the maps ready, buying some gear, buying food, just researching how do you even organize a five-month-long hike across yeah. an area where no one in living memory has ever walked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you talked about having to get, like, food shipped to drop-off locations and stuff like that, right? Like, Which is, well, yeah, which is kind of typical for, like, a through-hiker, whether you're doing the PCT or yeah. Appalachian Trail mm -hmm. or, or one of those. So what they do is they buy all their food at once. I spent about $1,000 on yeah. food. Then you just carefully separate it into little day packages and you put it into boxes. And then your mom sends these boxes to post offices okay. along your route. So that's exactly what I did, though. My buddy Josh in Denver, he'd be my base camp. So he'd be mailing these boxes to post offices along along my route. So that's kind of how I took care of food. You mentioned your mom. Uh, so obviously she'd gone through your your experience as a grad student at Duke living in the van, right? And uh, how did you respond to this idea of, I want to go on this long trek? I mean, I was, I was edging close to the age of 30 at mm. this point. And I think she'd, <laughs> she recognized kind of who I was at yeah. that moment. She kind of had to 
deal with a whole bunch of crap I made her, her go through. So yeah, so by that point, I'd lived up in Alaska. I'd hitchhiked almost 10,000 miles across North America. I lived basically in the 18th century for a summer when I took part in this canoe reenactment trip across Ontario, Canada. Yeah, this is the voyageurs. The voyageurs, yeah, the, the old 18th century fur traders. And yeah, so, and I lived in a van for a couple of years in secret. So when I told my, my parents, yeah, I'm thinking about illegally trespassing across the Great Plains. They're just like, oh no, not another one. <laughs> but you know, you're 30. So it's just yeah. like your parents have just a little bit less sway over you. You're your own, you're your own person at mm -hmm. that point. And I think by that point, she recognized that I had different inspirations and motivations than, than most people my age. And I think she wasn't in support of the hike, but I don't think she once ever got in the way of it. Yeah. She would just tell me I'm going to get shot for what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably a good little bit of warning, you know, um, especially once you hit the States. I mean, I'm not sure how Canada is, but you mentioned hitchhiking which I do want to talk about a little bit. There's something in like the ethos that hitchhikers have and even through hikers where you're, you're, you're hiking and you're maybe expecting to rely largely on the kindness of strangers for places to stay, for food. And kind of beneath all of this is like a belief in like the innate goodness of people. Is that something that you think you have? And if so, do you think that informs how you write? It surely is. But something like hitchhiking or hiking or... The right to roam, which I'm passionate about, is kind of like an escape from the realities of a commerce-driven culture where mm. everything's commodified, everything has a price. You walk down this town and there's just a million shops and there's just the sacred can't exist in those sorts of places. I think yeah. it's only where those places and those practices where commerce isn't where you can begin to find something close to that. So I've always been drawn to those things that lack that commerce-driven culture. So something like hitchhiking, where it's just one person passing off a kindness to another. And of course, you're, you're nervous at first because you have no idea who this person is mm -hmm. and what their motivation is. Like, for instance, I went on a, a hitchhike from Coldfoot, Alaska to Buffalo, New York. That was four to 5,000 miles. Yeah. And yeah, I was nervous at first, but after a few rides and a few more, you begin to kind of understand that America isn't as scary as we think it is. And yeah, I, I, I know I have fortunes and and privileges as as a white man and maybe i don't have to deal with some of the dangers that people with a different demographical makeup might have to deal with but i have to say from all of my experiences whether it's hitchhiking or hiking it's just kind of hammered home to me that people are generally very good and kind and and generous. That's very good to hear. Um, you mentioned the right to roam, which is largely what this land is, our land is about, about this idea. When did you first hear about this? Was this before the Keystone Pipeline trek or during or after? Yeah, so the right to roam is basically the, the freedom for any person to walk over land, camp over land, picnic over land, whatever, whether it's public land or your national parks or private land, which is, you know, 
some guy's land. Like you can do those things over someone's property. So I'm arguing for a right to roam to be imported to the US. So I think my first exposure to this issue was on my Keystone XL journey when I was hiking from Alberta to Texas because it was a trespassing journey. I was walking over cow pasture and hay fields and interacting with landowners. I'd go up to a, someone's house almost every day and knock mm -hmm. on it and ask for some water. Yeah. So I found that just very liberating and it was just far more exciting and adventurous than placing foot over foot on this already established trail. That mm -hmm. a trail is something like someone has designed directing you to a place. So in yeah. some sense- There's signs for water. Yeah. Signs for who can get food, yeah. It's not kind of like a frontier-like right. adventure. So I was just kind of like falling in love with my country and feeling this like daily dosage of, of freedom and just a lot of just wonderful things can come from an open roaming culture. But, you know, I thought this was all illegal. It wasn't until I got to Scotland 2013, I made a, a trip over there and hiked the Highlands. And I realized what they have over there is a completely different understanding of land ownership and private property. In 2003, Scottish Parliament passed a law essentially called the right to roam. And we've already described what the right to roam is, but you can do all of those things legally mm -hmm. on that land and now i live in scotland and i take part in the right to roam you know once a week or a couple times yeah. a month or something like that and it's just such a, a good thing for the individual and society because if we have access to green space that's good for our physical health our mental health we're going to see our neighbors a lot more we're not just going to get into our car and drive two hours to the nearest state park mm -hmm. we're going to see our neighbors faces it's good for a sense of equality because yes there might be huge differences in income equality and even land ownership equality but hey that rich guy who owes that thousand acres of land in that big mansion that's his land but it's also kind of my land mm -hmm. as well so it just kind of mollifies softens the the blow of of inequality and it's just again like a daily dose of freedom you get to kind of pick a point on a horizon and say hey i'm going this way it just makes you feel like a free man yeah and obviously i mean woody guthrie saying about it 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 seems like a very american thing i mean a lot of our heroes throughout american history daniel boone or you know guys like this i mean they kind of embody this wanderer traveler kind of thing how, how, how do you think we moved away from it so much. Yeah, what are we, like the land of the free, home of the brave? Is that, is that how it goes? Home of the fence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now we're the land of the sedentary and home of the paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think we have this like impression of ourselves as Americans. We tell ourselves we're like the freest people on earth. But are we though? You know, we go from high school, we're kind of herded into college and we have our our student debts that we have to deal with for years, perhaps decades. We get a home and then we're encumbered with a mortgage and then we retired, maybe we get an RV and then we die. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm simplifying things irresponsibly, but you get the point. But yeah, it's just like, is this the land of the free and home of the brave if sometimes you can just have nowhere to go? Like I think one of the freest activities you can take part in is it's kind of like freely walking across a field and exploring and camping and, and all of that. And you can't do that so much in the U.S. The lower 48 states, I'm not including Hawaii and Alaska, about 75% 
of our land in the lower 48 states is private property. And apart from a few cases of rights of way and easements, the American landowner has unbelievable powers of exclusion. That means they can put up a sign, a fence, a wall, and more or less kick off all 330 million of the, the rest of mm -hmm. us. So there is a almost three quarters of our lower 48 states that are unroamable. And I don't think that's a tenable situation. I think especially in years to come as the population grows, as we urbanize, as we begin to crave more green space and opportunities for recreation as our national parks continually get over flooded with visitors, we're going to need to explore other options. And I am boldly calling for private property to be opened up to responsible recreation. You touched on in the beginning of this book, maybe in the introduction, definitely towards the beginning, about how this is, you're taking the long view here. You know, you talk about this maybe being a something that, that will be implemented in the next century, but that it's important to start talking about it now. This kind of seems like antithetical to a lot of the way that we think on a daily basis. We're very short term. I know I'm not thinking about like what I'm going to do when I, if I can retire. How important are ideas like this, very long term things? And why do you think it's so difficult to get people to take them seriously? Yeah, I think most of our, the idea of the present, what does that exist for like a day, a month, a year, the lifetime of a roof? You know, mm -hmm. like that's, that's what we consider the present, but there's other ways to think about time and space. For instance, there's a foundation, I think it's based in California called the Long Now Foundation. They have a pretty good podcast and they think of the present as both 10,000 years in the past and 10,000 years in the future. So the present is occupies a 20,000 yeah, year awesome. <laughs> space. I mean, I wish I could be um, constantly operating in this like elevated understanding of time i'd have to say you know most days i'm just dealing with the everyday like most people especially when i have a three-year-old girl who mm. just wants to come and cuddle with me or yeah. whatever but yeah in the case of my book i was writing that book um during the 2016 election and you know i ex like most people i expected the democrats to win that and trump won it and like many people i was aghast and it really took the wind out of my sails like mm -hmm. i wanted to write this book about access and roaming and it just seemed like this country has so many more problems no one's going to read this book but then when i said you know maybe this book isn't for now it's not for maybe even 10 years from now but what if it's like for 100 years from now someone has to kind of lay some of the moral and historical groundwork upon which other things can be built, which laws can be built and, and policy. So that's kind of how I saw my role. And that was very liberating, mm. actually. So yeah, so that's how I powered through. Awesome. I'd like to talk a little bit about writing. Do you often try to go into nature, maybe somewhere a little bit more isolated outside of, you know, maybe where you live to, to write? Do you find nature a good place to write in? It's a great space to get inspiration from mm -hmm. and sometimes when i'm on like a walk i kind of just remember what it's like to have original thoughts again yeah. just because you know when you're away from your screens and you're away from those influences it's just like wow it just begins to just hit you bam 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 i remember i went for a walk in the the german alps and just for it was just like a 
36 hour hike. I must have just had like 15 new ideas mm. on that. Yeah. So I, that's where I get my inspiration. Of course, it's not that convenient to actually write there, but I have made a habit of carrying a little notebook mm. in, a, in a back pocket. Yeah. And that's kind of where the books that I write begin. Just any sort of thought gets scratched into there. Then at night, I'll usually have some sort of electronic device like an iPad or something and a keyboard and write an email, write a blog entry, use those notes. I take a lot of photographs as well. And as a writer, video and photographs are just critical for being able to kind of rebuild these these landscapes when they're being put on page because your memory can only do so much. So that's kind of the the skeleton of a book is is when you're going out there and becoming inspired with ideas and just kind of gathering content that way. Yeah. And you do a bunch of different kinds of writing. I mean, you write these nonfiction books, you write shorter articles, some things that are almost like memoir, like the things called Out of the Wild you wrote or I I got the title wrong. Mm -hmm. And you also write movie reviews, I think, right? Cranky movie reviews yeah. <laughs> on, my, on my blog, which frankly, not many people visit. But yeah, feel free to come visit my blog. It's uh, kenilgunis.com. Any sort of movie that I think is objectively bad, which mm. everybody else is saying is objectively good, that just makes my blood boil because it, it feels like the critic society is just undergoing a dereliction of duty and are suffering from some sort of... A mass delusion so there's just some <laughs> movies that just need like the, sh- the shape of water like <laughs> yeah. like i don't know how that one best picture a few years ago like i thought that was at best a mediocre movie and everyone was just like oh this is one of the best things it's just like, that was not a good movie it was such bad characters and bad dialogue and just a lousy story yeah so what's your opinion on rotten tomatoes i i mean i you got to curate your consumption, whether it's, you know, your, your books or your movies cause, or your TV, because it's just like, there's just so much stuff much. coming out. Like, if you go on Netflix it's, and you see all these, like, BBC dramas, just like, God, like, like which, which one is even worth my time? Yeah. So, Rotten Tomatoes, though it's not perfect, I, I find that it's generally a pretty good indicator of what's consumable and what's not. So, typically, when something's above, like, 90% for critics and 90 or 80% for public satisfaction, audience, yeah. then, then you're, you got a pretty good guarantee. Yeah, there. you got to look at the audience score for sure. And uh, you, you've worked a lot of different jobs. You talked about you working as a cook, you were a backcountry park ranger for a while. How important do you think it is for writers, especially young writers, to get out in the workforce to work jobs as they're trying to write? How do you think this in, informs you? Yeah, writer. yeah, I'm going to I'm going to take a perhaps unpopular approach to this. And and I am sure people who've gone through like an MFA in creative writing for fiction or nonfiction or whatever, I'm sure they've gone on to do wonderful things. And I haven't been through one of those programs, but just from my experiences, I see how important it was just to launch myself out into the world and gain a whole bunch of experiences whether it was seeing the Alaska wilderness or working alongside truck drivers up there and pipeliners and just kind of like these carny-like people who go from work camp to work camp. I mean, this stuff not only gives you like content for writing and characters, but you're just seeing more of the world. You're just seeing more of the breadth of human belief 
and opinion and and all of that and like what is what is our quickest route to wisdom and i just don't think it's kind of embalming ourselves endlessly in a master's or phd mm -hmm. program like when i think of some of my favorite kind of classic authors whether it's like a, a jack london or john steinbeck beryl markham who did this terrific travel book west with the night like these are people who didn't just like endlessly live in the academy no they you know they had their their education and mm. they went out into the world and experienced and and found knowledge and, and wisdom and insight and content so yeah i think it's important to have many jobs and you know like as i've become an established author where now i kind of work from home sometimes i wonder if i've lost a little bit of that like i'm not working in truck stops mm -hmm. anymore i'm not working in like a scottish pub right now maybe i should be yeah um and i think it, it helps you connect with readers in a way that maybe you don't think about as you write for instance that out of the wild piece that we were talking about earlier which is about you uh around lake clark living with a bunch of of brown bears mm -hmm. i've never been to alaska i've never seen a brown bear but there's a part in there where you talk about sauteing razor clams and garlic butter and roasting salmon in the oven and because i was a cook all through my 20s and food is a giant memory marker for me that was my way in i'm like instantly there with you because of that part so i think those experiences definitely help you connect with readers in, in ways that you can't even like foresee really yeah and that's I've, i'm actually adapting that article into the the next book i'm working on out of the wild is like a playful reference to into the wild because mm -hmm. yeah. our culture it's it romanticizes and celebrates perhaps rightly so these tales of adventure and going into the wild and being young and crazy and all that but we don't really talk about the stories about leaving the wild mm -hmm. about going out of the wild and as i talk about in that article and as i will write about in my book this book will be about going from kind of your wild experimental adventurous 20s into your more settled and rooted 30s like i think one of the keys to living a good life a life well lived is that we live it in according to our instincts and sometimes our instincts our impulses they tell us to go on those crazy adventures and that's like a phase that you go through mm -hmm. that's what my 20s were but then I began to feel others and I kind of resisted them for too long. And that was for community, family. So I just kind of found myself going back up to Alaska, living in isolation and being terrified by my job when perhaps a few years before I should have been trying to do other stuff. Because like I was 35 living in this cabin on this Alaska shore surrounded by 30 grizzly bears. I thought this is what I wanted to do when I was 30 25 not 35 mm -hmm. i should be like dating or something yeah, yeah 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 you gotta know when uh not to move on but to change direction a little bit i guess mm -hmm. i do have a couple more questions i i do have which which is maybe kind of a weird question but in that same article you talk about how when kids would get flown in you'd get a call sometimes from the air taxi and you'd meet them down there and you'd uh give them a little junior ranger ceremony and make them take a pledge if you had to do that for like one of the students on this campus, what would you want them to like make a pledge about? Oh boy, as there's, far as there's, environment's concerned, there's so many things. Like if you look back to like the late 1800s or early 1900s, 
the environmental movement was mostly just talking about like preserving wild spaces like national parks mm -hmm. and stuff. But now the environmental movement has so many things, whether it's cutting back on our meat production, making our oceans less acidified, making our groundwater cleaner, keeping our soil healthy for the next seven generations, always thinking about climate change, protecting those wild spaces, giving us the right to roam so we can become good stewards of the land and create relationships with the land that we don't have relationships with. So I don't <laughs> I don't know how that oath would go, but it would be a pretty long list of stuff. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to tell YCP students, anyone's listening to this before we, uh, before we go? I mean, I, I think that kind of behind all of my, my books is the story of a journey. And I think it's especially important to go on a journey when you're in your late teens or early 20s because those are the times when you're going to be truly shaped by it when it's become it's going to become like a geography of your soul so i think everybody should go on a journey perhaps during one of your summers off or when you graduate and i'm not talking about like a study abroad thing i'm not mm. talking about like mission service with your church i'm just talking about like some place or feet that you feel drawn to, you feel called to. And if I may suggest a few criteria, I would say, you know, pay for it on your own. It's got to be your journey. It's got to be a long journey. You have to like feel challenged and suffer and get over all that and just see how amazing you are as a person. So it's got to be like three months to a year or more. Leave the girlfriend or boyfriend behind got to be a solo journey and to write about it because i think until we write about our journeys it's only half a journey because when i've written about my journeys it's like they've they come to life they become whole because it's when you write about them when you extract meaning from them you fit it into the narrative of your life you gain knowledge from them that's when the journey becomes whole and uh, where can people find you online? Where can people buy your books? So you can find me on Instagram, though I never go on there. You can find most of my books on Amazon. And come to my website, kenilgunis.com, and sign up for my newsletter. I'm very passionate about my newsletter. You can just find a sign-up thing on my, my website. And uh, this podcast won't be out before the talk tonight, but you're giving a talk this evening at 5 p.m., correct? Mm-hmm. All right. And... Uh, are you going to continue to do that? Are you, you continuing a tour of talks or what's next it's, for it's, you? It's my side hustle. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's there to kind of support the low paying writing life. So mm -hmm. I do that every semester. I kind of just go on a little few week long tour. And, awesome. Yeah. Well, Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it, man. It was great. big thanks to Ken Ogunis for coming and sitting down and, and talking to us. We, we really had a lot of fun doing it. And thanks to everyone at YCP that's involved with bringing guests like Ken to this campus. As always, shout out to John Lear for all his work behind the scenes on this podcast, for organizing the guests, and for all the work he does in post-production. Please subscribe to the Rough Draft Podcast on whatever platform you get your podcast, and we look forward to seeing you guys next week. Bye-bye.